Would you take your Bibles this morning, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Today's the day we celebrate as Palm Sunday. And the next Sunday, we look forward to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, often referred to by many people today as Easter Sunday. But we're celebrating it because we're celebrating our resurrected Lord. And here we are a week away from that special time. And for the believer, really every Sunday as we gather is a day to celebrate the resurrected Lord because He's alive today. But in the events leading up to His crucifixion, there's some really fascinating things that you can study on this subject, but it came during the time of Passover. Passover, as we'll look at more this morning, was a special feast that the Jews had celebrated for generations, thousands of years. The night before Christ was taken, He met with His disciples to observe this Passover meal. This was something as Jewish people they would observe every year. But as they gathered together that night, Christ used this special Passover time to help His disciples to have a better picture of what was about to take place. And He left them with some commands that they were to repeat this special time again and again until the return of Jesus Christ. And so Today, I'm a Christian, but I'm a Gentile believer. I'm not a Jewish believer. We could celebrate the Passover. It's not wrong to celebrate the Passover. But as we understand in the New Testament church, they began to celebrate something that we now refer today, today as the Lord's Table. And at the end of the service this morning, we're going to observe this time together. And Paul the Apostle... He wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, and in 1 Corinthians 11, he records for them the teaching on the Lord's table. He says in verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He brake it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till He come. Whoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. Those are strong words. Not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. The title this morning is In Remembrance of Me. One of the things that I think is extremely important for us as a church, but as individuals, in our relationship with God is to know why we do what we do. 
Here in our text this morning, he repeats that phrase, in remembrance of me, two different times. He's saying, as you perform this time, as you celebrate this meal together, do this in remembrance of me. But have you ever noticed that things that were done a long time ago, if we're still trying to do them today, sometimes they can just turn into tradition? Things that we do, well, my parents did that. Grandparents did that. Hey, we've been doing this for generations. We just do it. We don't know why, but we do it. Maybe you have at your Thanksgiving dinner a particular dish of food that is brought every year. And everybody looks at that dish and says, why do we eat that? I don't even like it. Nobody here even enjoys it, but somebody is always obligated to bring it. Why? Well, and you find out. Well, it's because... Grandma used to make that, and great-grandma before her. You go back multiple generations, and there's a particular dish that comes. I'm thankful that in my family I enjoy all the dishes that are brought to Thanksgiving. With so much of my family here today, I figure I better put that (laughs) note in so nobody was concerned. But sometimes we can get busy doing things. So I want to take you back this morning, back to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. I want you to go back with me to Exodus chapter 12, and we're going to look at the origins of why we have 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this text that we read this morning on the Lord's table. I want you to go all the way back to Exodus 12 and pick up as we read about the first Passover. The first Passover. Now, I don't want to... Pretend that you have knowledge that you don't have. At the same time, I don't want to insult anybody's intelligence. But before I read from Exodus chapter 12, let me just catch you up where we are in the timeline of God's Word. If you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, we read that God created the world. He made everything that there was, and He made people. He made man and woman, and He put them in this beautiful garden we know as the Garden of Eden. And He told them that they were to be fruitful that they were to fill up the earth, they were to subdue the earth, they were to name the animals, they were given jobs to do. And God gave them one thing that they were not supposed to do. He said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, it wasn't long before they sinned. They ate of that tree, and then they hid from God, and God came to them, He found them, of course. You can't really hide from God. And God found them, and And God told them that because of their sin, they would be cast out of the Garden of Eden. But even with God's judgment upon them, He also made them a promise. He said that He would provide through the seed of the woman, one who would come and would bruise the serpent's head. Who was the serpent, you ask? Well, this was Satan who had come to tempt Eve and to try to get her to sin. And she, of course, succumbed to the temptation. She took of the fruit. She then took it to Adam. He chose to eat, and they both sinned. And because of that, God brought judgment upon them. And because of that, the entire human race has been plunged into sin. So Adam and Eve were outside of the garden. They began to have children. Their children grew up. We know the story of how Cain and Abel, how Cain murdered his own brother, Abel. The world grew. People continued to have babies, and they grew up. And it got to a place where the Bible describes that all people did was evil continuously. They just did what was ever in their heart to do that was wicked and wrong. And so God brought along a man by the name of Noah. And Noah was commanded to build an ark, this big boat. And Noah, while he was building this ark, he was to preach to all the people around him and tell them of the coming judgment. Noah preached faithfully for over 100 years while he was building this boat. And only Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives chose to come on the boat. That and a few animals that God sent. In fact, there were two of every kind and seven of particular kinds that God had chosen out. And God was preserving His people. He was preserving His world, but He was also cleansing it from a whole lot of sin at the same time. And after the great flood came, Noah and his family left the ark. 
And you would think everything's perfect now. God has started over fresh and new. The problem was even Noah himself was a sinner. And Noah wasn't long. He got drunk. And his son committed a sin with his father. And once again, we see the world as it grows and as people multiply and as they, as they continue on about their business. And it wasn't long before people began to get together and say, we're going to try to get to God on our own. And so they all gathered together and they began to build this gigantic tower. That was how they were going to get to God. And they gathered all the materials. They began to work together and this tower began to go up. It's amazing what people can do when they work together and put their mind to do something. But you see, you and I, in our own strength, cannot get to God. In fact, John chapter 3 tells us very clearly, really, I think, in His grace and mercy, rather than let these people continue on their futile attempt to reach God on their own, He confused their languages. We know that as the Tower of Babel. And they were spread out and they began to scatter around the world. And many, quite a few years later, there was a man by the name of Abram. Abram was a man who loved God. And God came to him and said, Abram, I want you to come with me. I'm going to lead you to a promised land. And I'm going to make of you a great people. And from you, all nations of the world will be blessed. God was carrying on that plan that he had made a promise to, to Adam and Eve. And now he made a promise to Abraham. And so as, as Abraham went, he had a unique situation, though. Abraham, Abram as his name was at that time, he and his wife were childless. In fact, Abram got older and older without a child. So much to the point that he finally said, well, I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands. And he went and had a child with his wife's Hagar. And I'm not going to go into all of it, but we are still feeling the repercussions of that decision to this day. But God who's faithful, who's merciful. God still gave Abram and Sarah, his wife, the son of promise. His name was Isaac. Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90 when she gave birth to Isaac. It wasn't too long after this as Isaac is growing and and maturing that God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, the son of promise, and I want you to take him. We're going to make a sacrifice. I want you to sacrifice your son to me. So Abram immediately gets up the next morning. He gets his son. He gets, he gets some wood and he puts it on the back of a donkey and he gets some coal in a, in a jar or some sort of way to, to transport it. And they begin to travel to this mountain. It was several days journey. And as they get there, they begin to go up the mountain. And Isaac looks around. And he says, Father, I see the wood and I see the fire. But where's the sacrifice? And do you remember what Abraham said? He looked at his son Isaac and he said, God will provide himself a lamb. They get to the top of the mountain. He binds Isaac up. He has him there on the altar. He has the knife raised, ready to kill his own son. You say, what is God doing? God was testing Abraham, but God also stopped his hand, and he provided, if you remember the story, there was a ram in the bush. Abraham looked over, and, and God had, had, a, had an animal there tangled up, and he took it out and sacrificed that to the Lord. And Isaac grew up. He ended up getting married, and he and his wife, Rebecca had two sons, twins, Jacob and Esau. That's a whole other story in and of itself. But God used Jacob, whose name, by the way, means supplanter, and was a deceiver. He used him to be the father, if you will, of all these different tribes. All of his sons, a couple of his grandsons, became the fathers of the tribes of Israel. Jacob had a very so that they decided that they wanted to kill him. But one of the brothers managed to convince the other brothers, instead of killing him, Let's sell him into slavery. That'll be better. So they, Joseph gets sold into slavery. He goes to Egypt. He's put in, in slavery in Potiphar's house, who was the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And Potiphar's wife takes a liking to Joseph, and she tries to seduce him. And Joseph re resists the temptation. 
But then she lies about Joseph, and so Potiphar takes Joseph and throws him in prison. While Joseph's in prison, he meets a couple of guys who were servants of King Pharaoh, or of the Pharaoh there in Egypt. One of the servants ended up losing his life, but the other servant was reinstated to his position of service in Pharaoh's household. Joseph had interpreted a dream for that servant, and it was a couple of years later when Pharaoh himself had a dream that he couldn't figure out what it meant. And he began to ask all of his advisors, and his servant came to him and said, well, there was a man in prison who was able to interpret my dream for me. Maybe he can interpret yours for you. And so the king sends down to the prison, and they bring Joseph up and out of the prison, and he comes into Pharaoh's house, and Joseph is able to interpret the time. He also tells the king, King, with this famine coming, that was the interpretation, you need to be prepared, and here's how you should prepare. Pharaoh says, well, this is good. This is a very wise man. And he puts Joseph second in command over all of Egypt. Here Joseph, he had gone from being thrown in a pit by his brothers to then being thrown in prison by Potiphar, and now he's put into the palace by Pharaoh. And a few years later, the famine came. And Joseph's brothers, those same guys, that threw Joseph in the pit and sold him into slavery, those same guys came to Joseph, came to Egypt looking for food, only they didn't know they were talking to Joseph. During this time, Joseph ends up revealing himself to his brothers, and he reconnects with his family, and he invites his father Jacob to bring the rest of the family and come to Egypt so that they would have food and be taken care of. And it was during the next several hundred years that the nation of Israel really began to grow and to flourish there in Egypt. They began to multiply. There were so many people, in fact, that after about 400 years or so, Pharaoh looked around and he said, the Hebrews are going to outnumber us, the Egyptians. And if we don't do something, they're going to try to overthrow us. And so they decided to enslave the children of Israel. That was a very difficult time for them. It was during this time that God had another man that was born. He was born, of course, as a little boy. His name was Moses. Moses should have been killed according to the law. The law was that any little boys that were born were to be put to death. But Moses' mother took him and she put him in a basket made out of reeds and she hid him there in the Nile River. And one day Pharaoh's daughter was coming down to bathe and she heard Moses cry and she took him out of the water. That's what Moses' name means, by the way. It means drawn out or taken out of the water. And she raised him as her own child. And when Moses became an adult, God took Moses, even through some of Moses' own sin, by the way. He took him out and he took him to the backside of the desert where he spent 40 years watching sheep until God came and appeared to him one day in a burning bush. And he sent him back to Egypt with this message, let my people go. When Moses got back to Egypt, he began to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no way. And God began to send a series of plagues until finally it came to the 10th plague. Thank you, Siri. Siri's not paying attention and should be turned off, so I don't know. And that brings us to Exodus 12 the 10th plague that Moses promised. You say, wow, we've just taken quite a ride. I felt like I just sat through all of junior church from the last <laughs> 10 years. But you know the storyline? What's God doing? He's fulfilling His plan. He's keeping His promise. And He's going to provide Himself a perfect lamb. That brings us Exodus 12, verse 1. And the Lord spake to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. 
But if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. I don't know what was going through their minds, but I just wonder, did they pick up on the fact that God was once again providing himself a lamb? Just like he had done with Abraham and Isaac there on the mountaintop so many years prior to this. Now God once again says, take a lamb. And he says in verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish. There was a, this lamb was to be a holy lamb, a, a lamb that was perfect. A male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And if you trace that even up through the New Testament times, there was a time there on the day of Passover when they would bring all the lambs together and they would all be slaughtered at the same time. I find it pretty fascinating because it was Jesus Christ Himself, the perfect Lamb, who was slain by the congregation of Israel as well in the evening. They didn't know that clearly in Exodus, but I believe God's foreshadowing. He's, he's looking ahead to what would come. And it says in verse 7, They shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the house, wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden it all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. And that which remaineth of it until morning ye shall burn with fire, and thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Now, why was that important? It was because God was about to set them free. He said, get your belt on, pull your pants up, get your bags packed, it's time to go. And that's exactly what happened. He says, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now look at verse 13. The blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. You see, that tenth plague, God had promised would be a plague where the firstborn son in every household in Egypt would be killed all in one night, from Pharaoh's house all the way down to the poorest person in the city. But he said, if you'll take a lamb, and you'll prepare that lamb, and you'll take the blood of that lamb and put it over your door, when I see that blood, I will pass over you. You see, works are not what impresses God or gets us His salvation. Praying prayers is not what brings us into a close relationship with God or causes Him to overlook our sin. It's the blood of the Lamb that was shed for us is why God passes over. The blood of the Lamb is the blood that pays for our sin. Now, in Exodus 12, this was an actual physical lamb. When you get to the New Testament, where we started out in 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus is now referring to Himself as the Lamb of God. And He says, I will pass over you. The plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And then listen to verse 14. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. What's a memorial? It's a place of memory, right? It's a place of remembrance, in remembrance of me. This shall be a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Now, this was a different kind of memorial than some memorials that we think of. Often we think of a memorial as a building or a plaque or a piece of stone or a statue somewhere thing is, those things over time get lost, they get destroyed, and they disappear. So he made a special kind of memorial, a memorial that was contained within a meal. Now, if there's anything people will continue to do, they will continue to eat. 
I think part of God's plan leave behind because it's too big to load up and take with you, but you have to eat. And so he put this in and he said, this is something you are to do throughout your generations. Keep it as a feast by an ordinance forever. So that feast of Passover then was celebrated every year by the Jewish people for all these generations until Jesus Christ, as he came and he walked and lived on the earth, he would have celebrated Passover many times. And now, the night before, he's taken to be crucified. He sends his disciples out. Luke 22 talks about it. Go and prepare the room for the Passover. That was normal. They did that every year. And they prepared that. And as they sat down for this Passover meal, which for these Jewish men, they did it every year. It's like you sitting down to Thanksgiving. Are you sitting down to Christmas dinner or something else that is a regular occurrence in your family? You're used to it. It's what we always do. Well, Grandma brings this, and Aunt so-and-so brings that, and my dad always makes this, and this is how we have it. It was their traditional observance that the Passover was not just a tradition. It was not just a, a religious event to observe over and over. Rather, the Passover was a powerful tool that God had left with His people throughout all these generations to point towards the perfect Lamb, Jesus Christ. And Christ there, as He gathered with And as he took the, the, the juice there in the cup to drink it, he said, This do in remembrance of me. Again, wait a minute. I thought the Passover was to remember the Exodus when we left Egypt. But now Christ is saying, No, this is in remembrance of me. It's a really powerful memorial that looks backwards at the same time. Helps us to remember what God did in delivering His people from Egypt, but also what God was doing in fulfilling His promise and what He would do in sending the perfect Lamb. And this is what Christ then brings all together that night of Passover so that everybody would know, wait a minute, this isn't just about Egypt, this is about me. This is all will look to me. So we see this Passover, it was something that was repeated annually. And if we're going to remember, as we're commanded to do here in 1 Corinthians 11, this do in remembrance of me, I want to make the point, I think it's an important point, that to remember something well, you need to repeat it regularly. It must be repeated regularly. This Passover was repeated annually. And in the Passover, there was the importance of a pure lamb. There was the importance as well of personal Purity. Did you know the feast of the Passover? During this feast, yeast in it. Because in the Bible, leaven was a picture of sin. So they would gather up anything with yeast in it and they would put it out of the house. What it was was a picture of people preparing their own hearts, confessing their own sin, and being right with the Lord. There's the importance of personal purity. And then we see the blood of the Lamb was an important part of Passover. It was to be put in the right place there on the door as a picture that this family, the individuals who live in this house, we are covered by the blood of the Lamb. There's a great reminder in this repetition that was to be done every year. And you know, when you come over to 1 Corinthians 11, when he talks about the Lord's Supper, look at verse number 26. He says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six, 26, For as often as ye eat this bread. You know the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper that we're going to observe this morning. This is something that we are to repeat regularly as well. If we never did this, we'd probably forget its significance over time, wouldn't we? Now, you might not forget its significance, but your children would. 
Definitely their children would. It must be repeated. And in the same thing, in the Lord's Supper, there's the importance of the pure lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But there's also the importance of personal purity. Verse 27, For whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup unworthily. Verse 28, Let a man examine himself. Personal purity. So, first point. I know it was a long one, a lot of introduction to this. If we're going to remember it well, we have to repeat it regularly. Secondly, if we're going to remember it well, we must refocus carefully. It requires the proper focus because you know as well as I do, if you do the same thing all the time without the proper focus, pretty soon you'll forget why you're doing it. Did you know that most car accidents happen within a few minutes of people's homes? Why do you think that is? Because when you get close to your house, it's familiar. You know where to turn, when to turn. You can almost close your eyes and just do it. Don't. <laughs> but people tend to lose focus when they do familiar things. Because it's what they do all the time. And I think one of the dangers, if we approach the Lord's table incorrectly, is that we come without any focus. It's just something that we do. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, is it the Lord's Supper today? Oh, that means service is going to go long. Yeah, let me text. Let me call the restaurant and push the reservation back. Uh, hope the crock pot can handle a few extra minutes. And it's not my desire to go long. I just want us to come with the proper focus. He says the focus very clearly, and he repeats it over and over in 1 Corinthians 11. In remembrance of me. And then look at the end of verse 26. He says, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. So we have the focus on the bread. And he divides these elements out. He says... Partake of the bread, do this in remembrance of me. Partake of, of the fruit of the vine, do this in remembrance of me. So, I know we normally do this at the very end of the service, but I normally don't preach the whole sermon on this. So, we're going to open this up. Brother Lewis did a great job making it beautiful for us today. We even have palm fronds to remind us of Palm Sunday. And the first thing he takes is the bread. Now, I'm sure his bread was not a nice, perfect square like this. But this bread, like that bread, was, is unleavened bread. It's without any yeast in it. That's why it looks like a cracker. It's basically what it is, a giant saltine. Although we didn't get salt on these, so these are, this is unsalted. It's just unleavened bread is all this is. And can you imagine? This is a Passover meal. Remember, they've celebrated this their entire lives. And Christ is standing there with His disciples and He takes the bread and He begins to break it. He says, This is my body, which is broken for you. Wait, no. I thought the Passover was about the Exodus and the bread was... You know, we didn't have time to cook it because we had to get out of the house quickly, so therefore the yeast didn't have time to rise, and that's why it's unleavened bread. I mean, that's a great memory, and it is, and that's part of it. But now Christ is refocusing. He didn't take away that significance. But he said, this is my body. Can you imagine the disciples sitting there that night? Your body... Like, remember, they didn't really understand all that was taking place. Christ had told them over and over, my body, I'm going to die and, and I'm going to rise again. This temple is going to be torn. They're just looking at him. This is my body. It's broken for you. I don't think they fully recognized the significance until after his body was broken for them. But there's the significance of the picture of the bread that signifies his body as it was broken as they came as they beat him with their fists, as they whipped him with that cat of nine tails, as they 
planted that crown of thorns in his head and pushed it down, as they ripped his beard out, as they spat upon him, as they nailed him to that cross by his hands and by his feet, and as he hung there and they stuck that spear in his side, his body was broken for you and for me. If we come to the Lord's table without the proper focus on what this represents, then it's just another kind of church tradition thing that we do. There's also the focus on what we're going to drink here, the fruit of the vine, this grape juice. I remember as a kid wondering what they did with all this grape juice that didn't get drunk at the Lord's Supper. Anybody else ever think like that? And I used to think, I'd like to go in the back room where those Ushers put, and deacons put all this stuff together. Then I Because I like grape juice. It's sweet. It's tasty. And I remember one time going back there, and I was watching them pour it all down the drain. I thought, why, why are we throwing away this good juice? You know, this time is not about filling your tummy with tasty treats. It's about focusing on the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for our sins. Coming in with the right focus. If we're going to remember this well, we have to refocus. We can get so busy in our traditions and repetition and coming in. There's the focus on the bread. Remembering what Christ did for us in. His body was broken. He died so that you and I don't have to die for our sin. You do show the Lord's death, but then it also says, till He come. In other words, this is a picture and a reminder of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, but it's also something to help us look forward to the second coming of Christ. I don't have time to go there, but I want you to go read it on your own time. In Luke 22, when the the Lord's table is described as, as Jesus is there with his disciples. He makes this statement, especially with the cup. He gives it to them. He offers them the cup so that they can partake of it. But he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, I'm not going to drink again of this cup until God's kingdom comes. Well, maybe somebody will come up and correct me about my interpretation later, but my understanding of this passage is this, that Christ has not partaken of this cup since before He was crucified, and He won't take of it again until the marriage supper of the Lamb, when all are brought to be together with Him. Can you picture that just a little bit like someday if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're standing in heaven with Him rejoicing there at the marriage supper of the Lamb when He reaches down and picks up that cup, the significance of that? He says, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which was shed for you. And I've been waiting. I've been anticipating. I've been looking forward to you coming home to that great marriage supper of the Lamb. And now I can drink of that cup. I've waited. I've wanted. You can forward to something. You just want to spoil it right now. He says, no, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for my bride to come. And then we're going to celebrate together. What a day that will be when my Jesus I will see. Beautiful picture of the love of our Savior for us. He denied Himself. He made Himself of no reputation. He took upon Him the form of a servant. And he was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, 
even the death of the cross. And he's ascended now up to the right hand of the Father and he's waiting for his bride to come home. He's not waiting because he doesn't have, it's not slack as some men count slackness, but his long suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Ye do show the Lord's death till he come. To remember well, you must refocus carefully. To remember well, I believe you must also reteach purposefully. Reteach purposefully. Look back in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, Paul says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Hey, church in Corinth, I'm just sharing with you what God has given to me. That sounds a whole lot like the Great Commission, doesn't it? When it says we are to teach them to observe all things. It sounds like 2 Timothy 2.2 where Paul said, Hey, Timothy, the things which you've heard me among many witnesses, the same. Commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Part of the reason for the Lord's table is it is to take the truth that God has entrusted us with and pass it on to our neighbors and pass it on to our friends and pass it on to our children. In a few minutes when we observe this together, we're going to bring all the boys and girls back in. And I understand some people may not choose to do it that way. That's okay. There are some churches say, this is only for believers, and it is. So if you disagree how I do this piece, that's okay with me. This is not a, a dogmatic issue, but understand my heart. The reason we bring the children in, the reason we're all together, is because I believe this is an important teaching time. And there are some of your children that can't participate. If that's hard for you, give them some grace. Pray for them. Because there are some children, and even some adults maybe here this morning, who don't know Christ as their Savior, who are not walking in obedience with the Lord. And so based on the, the description here in 1 Corinthians 11, they're not eligible to partake of the Lord's table. But let's use it as a teaching time. That's why we take so much time to read the scripture about oh, we know, we know. Let's refocus so that we can teach it to others because God continues to bring new people into our body that don't know these things. If you ever sit down with somebody, begin to ask them questions about the scripture, you'll be amazed. Yes, we live in a society that I think has had more church and gospel influence than any society ever in the history of the world, and yet people are completely biblically illiterate. We important challenges, or you can call them boundaries, things to watch out for when you're taking or about to partake of the Lord's table. He says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. Key word there, unworthily. We gotta, what does that mean? Well, let's keep reading. Shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So what do we do? Verse 28, let a man examine himself. By the way, this is why you don't need to come and confess all your sin to me. You have a high priest and it's not me, it's Jesus. But you need to examine yourself. I, I'm not going to check everybody's credentials at the door. How many times did you pray this week? How many times did you read your Bible this week? I believe this is a responsibility that each and every one of us has as individuals. Let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So here's what I believe this is teaching. We ought to take 
the Word of God, what it teaches about what is right and what is wrong, about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It means you've confessed your sin to Him. Jesus has saved you of your sin. You're following Him. You're now His child. It means you're walking in obedience. I would say that everything the Lord in baptism to demonstrate publicly that they've been saved. I believe then the next step would be that you would identify with a local church, a local body, and say, this is my body, that you are walking in obedience that way. But then it means that I'm walking daily, just confessing my sin to Christ and making sure I'm right with Him. He says, examine yourself. He says, if you eat and drink unworthily, those, he said, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning this Lord's body. And Paul tells him, hey, Corinth, in your church, there's problems. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. We like to rip that one out of context, don't we? What's this mean? Examine yourself. Make sure you're right before God so that God doesn't have to bring His judgment upon you. But when we are judged, if He does judge you, and He says we're chastened of the Lord, why? That we should not be condemned with the world. For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. If God brings His chastening, His judgment against you, that's not for you to reject God. That ought to be something. Thank you, Lord, for remembering that I can't do this without you. The devil comes along and says, see, God doesn't love you. Other people are going, see, see. No, judgment from God is actually a blessing of God. Remember Jonah? He went to Nineveh to preach God's coming judgment. And what did people do? They repented, followed God. My brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. Why do we wait for each other? Because we want to make sure everybody has a chance to examine themselves and is right with God. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home. I know, we're talking about food on a Sunday morning. And I get it, it's 12, 11. I've already gone long. But this isn't to fill you up physically. It's to fill you up spiritually. It's to challenge you. Even in these little... personal relationship with him that can truly fill you up and satisfy you and the rest he says i'll set an order when i come we need to recommit intentionally every time they came to the passover they were recommitting there was preparation they were going up and making the lamb making sure it's all ready the people were coming in they were cleaning the house they were setting it up they prepared the bread they prepared those spices that they would eat with it the same kinds of thing happen with the Lord's table. You know, there's some corporate preparation that comes for this. Obviously, I'm, I'm preparing to teach or preach on the subject. Somebody went to the store and purchased the items necessary and put all this together. But it's not just a corporate plan. This isn't just a church event. Oh, man, church did a good job with the Lord's table. No, there's personal preparation as well. That's every man Hey, if you're here this morning, if you were to stand before a holy God today, would you have any merit of your own? You see, the Bible is very clear. We've all sinned and come short of His glory. We can't stand before Him on our own merit. Don't have enough. So, well, I've done a lot of good things. You haven't done enough. Well, I've done more than the next guy. It's not enough. You still come short. Maybe someday you'll still fall short. So, well, what do we do? It's the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's been... He's been made the propitiation or the payment for our sin. So for the believer, 
we can come before an almighty God, not standing on our own merit. But the Bible does say we can come boldly, boldly to the throne of grace. But how can we do it? Well, I've just walked with God a long time, and I'm just used to coming boldly. Nope. Well, I've memorized a lot of scripture, and I can just quote the Bible. Nope. Not why you can come boldly. Well, I've been to school and I've studied how to teach and preach. I'm a bold person. That's just my person. That's not why you can come boldly. It's because we have a high priest. His name is Jesus. And he's the perfect lamb whose blood was shed. And when his blood covers your sin, God says, I will pass over you. And you through the blood of Jesus Christ, can come boldly into the throne of grace. Not based on your own pedigree. Not based on your own ability. Not based on who your parents were or how much energy you bring into the room. No, you come boldly because of Jesus Christ. And this morning, in just a moment, I'm going to have the piano played. I want us to bow our heads. And if you have sin in your heart between you and God, if you've done something, you say, I know. I know I've done wrong. I want you to confess it to God this morning. Examine yourself. If you're here this morning and you've never had a time in your life when you've prayed to ask God to save you from your sin, I would invite you to call out to Him and say, Lord, forgive me. <laughs> I'm not done enough. Man, all the things you talked about this morning, that's a lot more than I can even comprehend. But I'm so thankful that even as a sinner, Jesus died for me. And you can trust Christ this morning. And in a few minutes when we go to partake of this bread, this juice together, I hope together we'd say as we repeat this, it's not just become a tradition. We understand this is a powerful tool with a great purpose that God has intended for us to look back, yes, in remembrance of me, but also to look forward in remembrance of me. Lord, help us now. Do your work that only you can do. There's so much in your word on this subject that there's no way to put it in one message I've done my best, Lord, but you and your word are what truly have power, not my words. So I pray you'd speak to every heart this morning. In Jesus' name I pray.